This is Andy Cunningham, author of Get to AHA, Discover Your Positioning DNA and Dominate Your Competition. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Andy Cunningham to talk about her book, Get to Aha! Discover Your Positioning DNA and Dominate Your Competition, published by McGraw-Hill. An entrepreneur at the forefront of marketing, branding, positioning, and communicating the next big thing, Andy Cunningham has played a key role in the launch of a number of new categories, including video games, personal computers, desktop publishing, digital imaging, and software as a service. Andy came to Silicon Valley in 1983 to work for Regis McKenna, and help Steve Jobs launch Macintosh. She's the founder and president of Cunningham Collective, a marketing strategy firm that has worked with companies in a variety of markets such as artificial intelligence, cannabis, crypto, information technology, big data, cloud, gaming, mobile apps, search, semiconductors, and virtual reality. She has taught marketing classes at several universities, including Harvard Business School, New York University, Northwestern University, Stanford University, and the University of Southern California. Andy is a graduate of Northwestern University. And interesting fact, she and her husband Rand split their time between an old wooden boat in Sausalito, California, and the Alpine Air Park in Alpine, Wyoming. Andy, congratulations on Get to Aha, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. So I also want to thank Rand for letting you use his Apple computer for this interview because yours broke down this week. And I just thought, oh man, it's too bad. Andy Cunningham doesn't know anyone who works at Apple Computer. <laughs> well, the whole thing crashed and I talked to a genius at the Apple, you know, at the Apple store nearby and they told me it's dead. The data's gone. It's unsalvageable. Um, but if you want to go to a data recovery company, which I did go to, and a plug for these guys because they were amazing, they recovered all of my data. Oh, I'm what a so relief. so thrilled. Yes. Yeah. So you were using a 1983 Apple computer? No. <laughs> no, I have one, but I no, I'm oh. not using it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's great to hear. And I know that uh, that feeling of having lost everything, oh my goodness, it's, uh, mm. it's terrifying. So Alpine yes. Air Park, does that mean you all have a plane? Yes. So my husband, Rand, is a pilot. He's been a pilot since he was 14. And both of my children, my son, who is 27, and my daughter, who is 31, are also both pilots wow. since they were 14. Yeah. Wow. They, they, 
Yeah, they were glider pilots at from 14 to 16, and then we, when they turned 16, they became motorized oh. air, aircraft pilots. Yeah. Well, very impressive. That's great. That's great. Now, I want to give a, a shout out to uh, our mutual acquaintance, Aaron Hassan, for introducing us. Yes, thank you, Aaron. Aaron's been great. I work with Aaron now. He's fabulous. And his wife, Carrie, who is also fabulous. Okay, Aaron and Carrie, there we go. So just one other question about your book, uh, Andy Cunningham. With a book title like Get to Aha, is your favorite band the 1980s Norwegian synth pop band Aha? <laughs> Uh, no, definitely not. But I do know that song quite okay. well. <laughs> so when you deliver keynotes around the world, is that your walk-on music when you take the stage? No, but that is a great idea, Doug. I'm going to take you up on that. <laughs> Andy, there's no charge for these ideas, you know. <laughs> That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm full of ideas as long as I don't have to implement them. So be careful with any okay, other ideas nope, I offer. No problem. But that's an easy one. That's easy to implement. Yes. Okay. Well, there you go. There you <laughs> yeah. go. Especially if you're going to give a talk in Norway. And I should say, you know, uh, hello to all the listeners in, in Norway. I hear from them all the time. So your book was endorsed by a number of uh, luminaries, including uh, the late Al Rees, uh, who, who passed away last year at the age of 95. Yes. And Very sad. Best-selling co-author of the famous marketing book, Positioning which he wrote with Jack Trout, which is the first marketing book I ever read back in the 1980s. Ah, yes. And he wrote, stop, before you start a branding program, read Andy Cunningham's book. First, figure out your company's DNA, mother, mechanic, or missionary, a revolutionary idea, well-written and quite convincing. And then just to drop another name, Jeffrey Moore, <laughs> author of Crossing the Chasm, he wrote, Branding is what you say about yourself. Positioning is what other people say about you. Andy Cunningham knows the difference, and she shows readers how to create authentic marketing communications in a digital age. And finally, your the foreword to your book was written by an author whom I've had the honor of interviewing twice, Guy Kawasaki. Oh, great. Yes, Guy is, Guy is a great guy. <laughs> yes, and uh, I actually got to meet him. He came to uh, my city, and he gave a talk, and... I had a, a a MacBook, and I, I I spoke to him, and I said, "Can you can you just autograph this?" And he said, "Well, yeah, I guess, but you realize that's going to decrease the value of your <laughs> of your MacBook." <laughs> but he was he's a good sport and a very funny guy. He is. I wanted yes. to read the uh, the forward here. He, it's very short, and the best forwards are always very short, I think. He wrote, Andy and I met when we were working for Steve Jobs on the launch of Macintosh. She was leading the charge from Regis McKenna, Incorporated, Apple's PR firm, and I was a software evangelist spreading the good news to developers. My job was to sell the dream. Andy's was to make it credible. Lately, Andy has been making entrepreneurs more successful with a dynamite approach called positioning DNA. Essentially, she postulates that there are three kinds of companies in the world, mother, mechanic, or missionary. When you figure out which one your company is, you are better able to position your way to success. I highly recommend that you read this book to understand Andy's framework and prepare your company for worldwide domination. Andy <laughs> is truly one of the people who caused Apple's success. So she could help you become the next Apple. So I mentioned uh, Al Rees uh, and Jack Trout, and you write at the beginning of this that uh, in, in many ways, Get to Aha is is a follow-up to the seminal book, Positioning. I think you said it's a, 
you uh, you like to think of Get to Aha as positioning 2.0. How so? Yes, absolutely. So, as I think you mentioned in, early on in this conversation, there's only two books written on positioning that I'm aware of. That one that that Al Al Reese and Jack Trout wrote, and then my book. So that's why it's 2.0. But it but there are decades between those two, and so much has happened since they wrote that book. And I actually think they did the writing in the 70s. So it's it was way before personal computers, way before cell phones, way before the internet, before all of that stuff. So they uh so their approach to it was was the same strategic, you know, philosophically I should say, it's the same idea where you want to and this is an analogy they use that I love, you want to own the real estate in the mind of the customer, right? Mm-hmm. You want to create that real estate and then own it. And um and that idea is timeless, but the execution of those things and and how you have to deal with um, the new world that we live in since uh, the 70s is very different. So that's why read the first one. I totally agree. Everyone should read that book. It's brilliant. And then read my book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So now we got to get a couple definitions out of the out of the way here. Uh, you you write like uh, at one point many marketing and strategy agencies equate positioning with branding, and then you also write despite the fact that the terms positioning and branding are often used interchangeably. You believe they are distinctly different. Please explain how. Yes. So positioning, I believe, is the reflection of your strategy in rational terms. So it's not none of no adjectives, no fluff and nutter, no advertising, no music. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's just it's just the the rational description of your strategy, which is a, the answer to the question: Where do you sit in the in the competitive landscape that's unique and compelling? Branding, to me, is the emotional side of that equation. So every company, just like every human, has an emotional side and a rational side. And branding work reflects the emotional side. So it's, it's much uh, softer, I would say. It, it, reflects, uh, it, it reflects your strategy in terms of tone of voice and imagery that you use, uh, the, way, the way you approach the market, how you, how you talk about things. So very different from the rational side, which is really, you know, where where are you on that competitive landscape that's unique and compelling? Yes, you talk about the yin and the yang, and you talk about Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk. Yeah, so, my favorite show ever, yes. So uh, Mr. Spock is the positioning, the rational side, and Captain Kirk is the more emotional, uh, appealing side of, of branding. And you write, it's so clear in your book, if a company's positioning in the market is wrong, any branding effort, no matter how creative or clever, is probably doomed to failure. And a company's competitive advantage isn't revealed in a typical branding exercise, no matter how creative it might be. So I want to go to page three, the very beginning. But before we do, I want to set the stage. Who am I anyway? Okay, yeah. So chapter one, great marketing starts with great positioning, and you write, who are you as a company? Why do you matter? And those are two sentences that come up quite a bit in the book. And you go on to write, if you find that determining who you are and why you matter is tough, rest assured, you're not alone. Do a lot of people think it's it's not as complicated as it can be? They don't think it's complicated until you ask them to answer those questions on behalf of themselves as human beings. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's how I get them to understand how difficult those questions are. So, you know, who are you, John Doe, and why do you matter? 
And hmm. uh, when they think about it in terms of themselves as humans, in fact, this is how I teach young people how to do this. I ask them to fill out my message architecture framework for themselves. <laughs> and uh, and it, it, it's an eye-opening experience because it d- makes you realize how difficult it is to really articulate your differentiation, your role and relevance, your unique position in the market, your value proposition, all of that. Oh, and that's all in uh, Chapter 5, which goes into great detail. I want to go back to the part of the book that just got me probably more fired up than any other section based on my experience and uh, what I've seen work and not work, and as well as what the myths are about positioning and branding, just to set the stage here. And then we can kind of maybe stop kicking this uh, dead horse, but this is from page six where you write, you know that a brand agency's effort has gone wrong when a company spends thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions on a branding project that fails in the market or never gets there in the first place. Instead, the clever taglines and color-coded decks featuring a fancy typeface, cute logos, and elaborate charts gather dust on executive office shelves or eventually are dumped into the digital trash can, never referenced and hardly remembered. After a while, the call goes out to hire yet another brand agency, one that will get it right this time. And then further down on page seven, you write, uh, you quote uh, one of your clients who said, when they first came to you, I guess it was, we invested tons of money and tons of hours of our leadership team's time on a branding project with a well-known brand firm. What we got was flashy and pretty, but it's not going to show up anywhere within our company. It's useless to us. It's too fluffy and our customers won't get it. And I can't resist, you write, I hear this all the time. Companies are awash in branding initiatives that don't work. For some reason, when a company begins the process of rebranding itself or refreshing its brand, chief marketing officers like to start with the look and feel. Part of the reason for this is that logos and websites are the primary physical currency of a brand. And in today's internet economy, companies are starved for physicality with regard to their brands. The other part is that eye candy tends to get noticed by senior leadership teams. It speaks to the emotional side of the brand, something most executives never get to experience. It offers a happy, upbeat distraction (laughs) from the day-to-day problems that dominate their jobs. Simply put, this kind of branding is fun and refreshing for everyone. But when you start with branding, before digging into positioning, before you understand DNA and the white space and the market that your company is uniquely suited to fill, you are jumping the gun. You are coloring the picture before it has been outlined. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? It's just, it just got me so fired up. And I've seen it. And it's like, as I mentioned before we were recording, you know, over the years, I thought I was taking crazy pills, seeing this disconnect. So a couple questions about positioning. How is positioning as much about sacrifice as it is about differentiation? Oh, I love that question. I love that question. So the, the underlying desire of every human on the planet, and therefore every company on the planet, is to be all things to all people, <laughs> right. right? That's what we all want. <laughs> and so we, we really work hard to try to do that. <laughs> and when you're in an exercise, marketing exercise with a company, that's what happens, especially if it's a committee of people, you know, if it's five or six or 10 or 12 people, everybody wants to put their idea of what the company is into the, into the positioning. And then what you end up with is, you know, a giant, 
mush ball of nothingness that means nothing to no one. So I tell people immediately in the very beginning, positioning is about sacrifice. You must decide the one thing that you want to be known for, not the 37 things you want to be known for, but the one thing. And then we can we can add those 37 things into different elements of your messaging as we move forward. But the one thing is your position. It's where, where do you sit on the competitive landscape uh, that is compelling and unique. So so that's why it's really important. And we use an iceberg analogy. You see that in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's a waterline with an iceberg, right? And above the waterline is the smallest part of the iceberg, but it's the most important part because it's the part you can see. Underneath the waterline is the rest of the iceberg and therefore the rest of your company. So those 37 things that you want to be, they live underneath the waterline. They still exist. They might even cause a ship to crash, <laughs> but they aren't the thing <laughs> that you see in in the everyday, uh, you know, positioning or, or branding of the company. Yes, on page 131, I had to chuckle as I did throughout the book. You write, I often tell new clients that I already know their positioning statement without having to talk to them. It's obvious they want to be all things to all people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yep, that's what they all want. We all we want it as humans too, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know who else wants to please everybody is my golden retriever who's Your asleep on the retriever. floor. <laughs> He wants worst guard dog in the world. So uh, that's right. So now another interesting thing in the book that I think is relevant for folks who may not be like, let's say they're not big advertisers, but talk about how positioning is important for companies that have no need of advertising or other forms of broad-based messaging. Well, positioning is important. If you're, if you're trying to sell anything to anyone, positioning is critical. So it doesn't matter what other kinds of marketing you're going to do. The The potential customer has to know what you do <laughs> and where mm-hmm. you sit against the competitive situation. So even if you're not going to do what we would call typical consumer market, if, even if you're not going to do a Super Bowl ad, <laughs> you still have to, you still have to know wh- where you sit in the marketplace or you can't have a, have a compelling discussion with a, with a potential customer or a prospect. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's critical for everyone. And here's the other thing about positioning to, to know, and I don't talk about this too much in the book, but positioning will happen to you if you don't happen to it. <laughs> oh, so yeah. it, it will just happen. Even if you don't put any effort into it, the market will position you and likely they will not position you the way you want to be positioned. Yes. So don't let that happen. Get yes. control over your positioning and your marketing and your, and your brand. Nature abhors a vacuum. And not only that, your competition might start to reposition you. Oh, totally they will. And the less less work you do on your positioning, the more work they'll do on your positioning to deposition you. (laughs) So it happens to you whether you want it to or not. So you might as well invest the time and energy to to do it right. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great point. Now, uh, one thing I want to ask you about, and this wasn't necessarily in the book, but I'm just so curious. You write that one of the first things you and your team do when you're working with a client is – you know, learn everything you can about the company by interviewing people like inside and outside the company and, uh, you know, from the executive team to customers, even potential customers who might have even gone elsewhere and didn't buy. Yes. So what's not covered in the book, but I'm curious about is what are the types of things you probe for when you're interviewing all these people? You know, the, the, the thing I'm really looking for, because I already know a lot about the company when I start in on those interviews, because we've read everything that they have and all their business plans. And, you know, er, so we, we're pretty knowledgeable. I'm looking for language. I'm looking for how do people describe what, who that company is and what they do. And one of the best exercises is to sort of map out all of the interesting words that are used by all the people that we interview mm-hmm. and then start pairing them up. 
in unexpected sort of ways. And that is how you can kind of create a new space. So if you think about how this has happened in the past, it's happened many times. Automobile, airplane, typewriter, telephone, these are all new things that came into the market that were that were named after two things that didn't go together initially, right? So airplane, typewriter, you know, all these things are brand new ideas. So that's what I look for. I look for what is what is some language I can pull from what these people said and then put them together in new and interesting combinations. Interesting. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary... They wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Too many companies don't do those interviews. They don't talk to their customers and unless to say what do you want or on a scale of one to ten how likely you recommend us based on the fact that we lost your luggage (laughs) (laughs) right well let's talk about another big point you make in the book talk about the importance of management buy-in and you even had a joke in there about you've had cfos say why do i need to be involved in this right that is Oh my gosh, that's probably my biggest bugaboo, if you will, in this whole this whole career that I've had. And I have decided in recent years not to even do this work for a company unless the CEO is involved. Yes, I'll, yes, I'll you, yes. Uh. <laughs> because because the CEO companies go in the direction of the CEO. That's what the jo- the job is, right? He or she is the leader of the company, and and he or she has enormous weight in what how people talk about the company, how they market the company, how they position the company. And if they're not involved in a, in this process, they will not buy into it. It's like anything else. If you have your fingerprint on something that is created, even if it's a created by a team, if your fingerprint is in that pie or that cake, then you are going to like that cake so much more <laughs> than if you just went out and bought it for $3.99 at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. So, so I'll just give you a quick example. A few years ago, we did a project, a very large positioning and very expensive positioning project for a very large Fortune 100 company that was experiencing some serious issues. There was a leadership team of about 20 people. They were uh, they all reported directly to the CEO, and we were brought in by the head of marketing and communication to do this project. We spent four months researching and talking to these people and strategizing with them and coming up with what we all thought, all 20 of us plus our our team, thought was a brilliant direction for this company to go strategically. We presented it to the CEO and he said, I don't like it. (laughs) And all that work and all that buy-in and all those 20 people, everybody, everybody felt like a failure because because he didn't like it. And the reason he didn't like it is because he didn't have anything to do Mm -hmm. with it. 
And so that's that's just a rule now. If you're not if you're a CEO and you don't care enough about this to to be involved, then you can go elsewhere. <laughs> don't waste your money. Yeah, I got the impression. Don't waste your money from the book that uh, if your if your CEO is not on board, they really are wasting a lot of time and money. Absolutely, absolutely, and and sometimes you know, direct reports to CEOs think I can do this job. It's my job to do this job, and then I will, you know, communicate it back to the CEO. That's why he hired me to do, you know, to be this person. But it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. The, these things are the, we're talking about your DNA. That's why I call this DNA because we're when you're getting in there and fiddling around with how a company is positioned, you're really playing with their who they are at the core, and you have to. You can't just do that. It's not like a new ad or a new picture or a new image or a new voicemail recording. It is like, it's like who you are as a company. And CEOs do care about that. They don't know they care about it till they see something they don't like. <laughs> then they like, oh, okay, I guess this is important. Or see something a competitor is doing. Or see, oh yes, of course, of course. <laughs> that's yes, the competitors. I I love the. My my whole my funny thing about uh, companies and competitors is when you're interviewing them and you ask them, so tell me who your competitors are. None of them have any competitors, oh, not a single one. Right. <laughs> then somebody who is a competitor puts out something in the market that they don't like or that is you know degrading to them or or lifts the other company up or whatever, and all of a sudden you discover who the competitors uh-huh. are. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> because they get very emotional about it. So, yeah, and I'm going to come back to that when we get into the, the six C's in just a couple minutes here because there's something very specific about that, competitors versus uh, alternatives for customers. But just to put a bow on this, you write, not to beat up too much more on branding firms, but branding <laughs> firms may have ingenious ideas and may even be right about the power and efficacy of those ideas. But if they haven't brought the management suite along on the journey with them, they'll find themselves on a trip to nowhere and on the next page, you write, in the end, a company's leadership will buy into a marketing campaign only if it has had a hand in its creation. So yep. what everybody's wondering Absolutely. wondering about now is uh, mothers, mechanics, and missionaries. This was the core of the book. It's the core DNA. And I was wondering if you could explain what those are, and then we'll come back to them and talk about the, the genotype within each one. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Let's go. Mothers, mechanics, missionaries. I just have to say, I don't know how in the world you came up with this, but it makes so much sense. It hurts. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I think it does too. And I'll tell you how this happened. I I, uh, I was in trying to pitch a potential new client many years ago. And the person who was running the company was was a brand new, the company had just been taken over by a private equity firm. And this was a money guy running the company. He didn't know any, and he admitted, he said, I don't know anything about marketing and I don't know anything about software. This was a software company. Uh, he said, but, but what I do know is that what you're telling me sounds like magic about how you come up with these positions. This was before I had a framework or anything. And, and I f- think it's very expensive. And I, I just want to know how you're going to do this. <laughs> That's my only question to you. Before I hire you to do this, I want to know how you come up with these positions. And I thought, God, that's a brilliant question. <laughs> Nobody would ever asked me that before. Because just like every other marketing person, I do what they all do, right? You go into a dark room, you light a candle, you you know, get some incense burning, you do a little meditation, and then you come out with this, ta-da, mm-hmm. I've got the answer. And that isn't really what's happening. What's really happening is a whole rigorous process in your brain. And like anyth- anyone who's any good at anything, like take Steph Curry in basketball, you know, 
it might just seem like he's just good at it. But if, if, if you analyze everything that he does, you'll see a process and a framework and, a, and steps and all of these things. So, so that's what I did. I went back into my office for like three days and I, I reverse engineered what I do when I come up with positioning statements for companies. And what I, what I did is I started with a manual cluster analysis and I wrote on a little yellow sticky the name of every company that I could remember that I had worked with. We're, we're talking well over 100 companies at this point in my career. Maybe more. Maybe it was more like 200. And I wrote down as many as I could remember or get out of my data and I, I started to just manually cluster them. What do they have in common? And after like eight hours of, of moving these companies around, there were really only three piles there. There was one pile that was companies that super, super committed to their customers and driven by everything that their customers say and do. And then there was a pile that was all about product. And then there was a third pile, a much smaller pile, but these people were trying to change human behavior on a fundamental level and didn't care so much about customers or product. So I, so I then started to study those companies and figure out what are they doing? What are they doing differently between each other? What makes them, you know, what they are. I didn't give them the nicknames of mothers, mechanics, and missionaries till many years later. I just called them customer-focused, product-focused, and concept-focused. Um, but then what I did is I further took each one of those piles, and I studied them to determine, okay, if you're in this pile that, I, that I'm calling customer-focused or mother, how, how do you guys position yourself? So again, I took each company and, and tried to analyze how they're actually positioning themselves in a generic sort of way and came up with two ways for each of those piles that each company can position itself. Only two, which is interesting. There's only two ways to position yourself if you're a mother, and that is, uh, that is around customer experience or, or um, customer segment. Mm-hmm. So those are the two ways. If you're a mechanic, you position yourselves around value of your product or features. Or both. And then if you're a missionary company trying to change human behavior on a fundamental level, you're typically positioning yourself around the next big thing, and often that's paired with a cult of personality. Not always, but often. So that information alone, when you go in to help a company do positioning, if you know what their DNA is and what their genotype is, all of a sudden what looks like a sea of a thousand choices for positioning gets narrowed down to six to a very small amount. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's manageable and it's consistent with who you are as a company. So it turned out to be an incredibly valuable little three days. And then I went back to my CEO and I said, I got it. I know what I'm doing when I when I when I do this. And this is what it is. And he went Brilliant. Okay, you're hired. <laughs> oh, it's like you so, cracked the anyway. code on the Enigma machine or something. Yes, oh. it felt like that to me, actually. Wow. So, yes. Yeah, and so those are the genotypes you mentioned. So the mothers, it's either yeah. customer experience or customer segmentation. A mechanic is either product value or product features. And then the missionary, next big thing, or cult of personality. And you've got all the tests in there, and I took it. Yep. Well, what are you? What are you, Doug? Uh, mechanic, product value. Okay. Okay, great. I got I got great. eight out of twelve, so I was a mechanic, and then it pointed me to product yep. value, and it was like, dang it, it's like she's met me. It's like she no. <laughs> so, but you know, I had to wonder, and, and this is just speculation on my part. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. But is the largest percentage of companies uh, does it tend to be mechanics followed by mothers, and then missionaries is the smallest? number of companies? You know, in the technology arena, which is the arena that I've pretty much been in most of my career, it is it is mostly mechanics because it's people who are typically engineers. Mm-hmm. They have a new way of doing something and they think it's better. And so they start a company and they're very mechanic oriented. There are becoming more and more 
other companies in that space because now the big fad is customer experience. And so now we have a lot of companies that are starting to focus more on their customers. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the world at large, I would say it's, it's about half and half. There's a, you know, a same number of people as mothers as there are mechanics. The missionaries are the ones that are very are much smaller. Everyone wants to be a missionary. In fact, everyone thinks they're a missionary <laughs> right. when I first meet them. <laughs> and didn't you say that every uh, technology executive does a rite of passage through the missionary? Yes, they all do. They all do. I must be a missionary because I admire Steve Jobs and he was a missionary. Yes. So, uh, yeah, but it, but but they soon discovered that that's not the case. There's a little case study in the book uh, about a company called Building Connected, which has recently been sold or has since then been sold to Autodesk for a very nice valuation. And they all thought they were missionaries too. They were they were a software company that was building construction software for the construction industry to manage subcontractors. Mm-hmm. And they thought they were changing behavior on a fundamental level. And we were sitting in a meeting one day uh, with them, with the leadership, and all of a sudden somebody comes in and whispers something into the CEO's ear, and he pops up and, and whispers something into the two guys next to him, their ears, and they pop up and they all leave the room and they run out and they said we'll be back in in a few minutes and they ran out and apparently what they were doing was dealing with a customer call um, who was having an issue with the product and when they came when they filed back in all three of them I said I don't think you're a missionary I think you're a mother (laughs) because there's no way that all three of you would have popped up and left to deal with this customer issue if you were a missionary yes it just this wouldn't happen your behavior is different and they went you know you're right. We don't like the term mother because we're a big macho construction mm-hmm. company and we're all men, but you're right. <laughs> we're a mother. <laughs> That's great. And uh, the listeners should know the last six chapters are, are six short, short chapters about the three different core DNAs yes. and the, the genotype for each. And that was the first yep. one. <laughs> it was very, yes. very interesting. Yes, that was, a, that was a fun one, actually. <laughs> yeah. So now I told you about what got me really fired up, and we've already talked about that enough. You know about the the difference between branding and positioning and the, the yeah do positioning first yes. that's the take home oh. value there do positioning first but the biggest head slap <laughs> for me on this was on page fifty one and you just touched on it there and I'm going to quote from this and ask you to talk a little bit more about it okay you're right it's that unrelenting focus on delighting the customer that can result in so much positioning pain there's a belief out there a philosophy that all companies must be customer centric what I call the customer centric conundrum. Customer centricity is a popular trend that causes companies to work outside their DNA. It's a fad that's gotten out of control. It's easy to see how that happened. It sounds so warm and fuzzy to delight the customer, to be customer centric, to listen to the customer and so forth. Who wouldn't want to do that? So I was of that mindset as as well. And I've had, gosh, 10 or 15 books about customer experience and the importance of it. And I've just read so many books that talk about how the companies that have the deepest insights into their customers are successful. But I feel like I learned something. You talk about that. So if you're not a mother, it doesn't mean you don't pay attention to your customers, right? No. And Doug, that's a very important thing to say. So each of those DNAs is not exclusive of the other two. Mm -hmm. So if you're a mother, you're going to be supporting that with a little bit of missionary and a little bit of mechanic. If you're a mechanic, you're going to be supporting it with a little bit of missionary and a little bit of mother. So it's like regular DNA. There isn't just one gene that identifies who you are as a human, right? You got like a lot of them. <laughs> you got a lot of genes and a lot of DNA that that expresses who you are. But there is a facing personality and that's really what this DNA thing is all about. It's about the facing personality. And so that's really 
something that I think that's really critical to remember when you're thinking about how, how you're doing all this. You're not eliminating the other two just because you go with one. You're still, it's still in there supporting you, but you're not faced, facing with that. So that, that's one thing. Then the second thing I want to talk about is this customer centricity concept here. You know, and no matter what you're selling, knowing who your customer is, is, is critical, right? I mean, we all, you have to know your customer, but there's a level of customer relationship stuff that goes on with these mother companies that is far and away above what mechanic companies do far and away mm-hmm. and like an example is most of these these mother companies their primary measurement of success is the nps score mm-hmm. right you look at a lot of mechanic companies they don't care so much about their nps score they might even measure they might measure it but they don't care about it not like the mother companies do they don't three executives in a meeting don't pop out of their chairs and run to deal with a customer escalation <laughs> Right in a in a in a mechanic oriented right. company, there's there's some department down the hall that handles that. Right, uh, it's just there's just behavior after behavior. You you sit in a room, in an executive boardroom, talking with the the senior executives of a mechanic company, and they're talking about features, they're talking about pricing, they're talking about market share. They're, they're that's what they talk about. You you go over to a to a mother company, and they're talking about customer relationships. Uh, customer lifetime value, <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, share of wallet of each customer, very different kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what you need. You need to behave in the market consistent with who, who you are. And what I what that point in the book is trying to make is that if you happen to be a mechanic company, so let's take Oracle as an example or Microsoft, both of these are very successful, you know, mechanic companies. If you try to behave like a mother company, you're going to be creating a problem for yourself because it's it's like if you're if your talent as a human being, like Steph Curry, is to play basketball, but somehow or other you decided you're going to be a concert pianist because you happen to like piano music, but it's not where your DNA lies. You're not going to be that successful, right? Mm-hmm. The success lies in matching up what you do with your DNA. So what I like to say is, if you know what you're made of. You can make something of it. <laughs> and that's true for companies as well. So if you know that you're made of mother DNA, then hell, make something of it, right? Go with that. Play the hand you're dealt. Play the hand you're dealt and, and use it as an advantage. It is an advantage. You're, everybody's DNA is an advantage if they discover what it is. Well, and now what happens when a company uh, thinks they have two things equally, I mean, you you still say no. You there's going to be one that rises to the top. I force them to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Is what I, I do. And occasionally, when they take the test, we do discover that that it's half and half. And so, what I do, we that is just a great entree to a wonderful strategic discussion about who they really are as a company. Mm. And then, and we work it out. We work it out. Which which one are you? Because you you can't really be both. It's like you can't be both a concert pianist and a great basketball player. I mean, maybe if you're Leonardo da Vinci, you can do something like that. Mm-hmm. But even Steve Jobs couldn't do that, right? You 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 need to go with who you are because it will it will just help you be better at it. Yes. It'll help you. <laughs> it's a good thing yes. to know what your DNA yes. is, right? It, yeah. Well, now. <sighs> You answer this in a chapter later in the book, but I had been wondering about it until I got to that. What what if there's tension between who you are as a company and how you think you want to position? My sense is that you must get that uh, a lot, where a company's in some sort of denial, saying, "No, no, no, we're a you know a missionary," and you're saying, "No, you're you're a mechanic." 
Yep. So that that happens. That does happen a lot, and usually it's with missionary because, especially if you're trying to be an innovative company in the world of technology, doing something new and different, you believe that what you're doing it really is, you know, life changing, mm-hmm. right? And most technologies that are developed today are not life changing. They are they are incremental improvements on what is done already, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that takes probably weeks to get through with a company for them to really come to understand that. And that's the Building Connected guys were like that. It was like they had to have a physical example of themselves behaving a certain way before they realized what that was, you know, what was what was going, what their DNA actually, actually really is. Uh, so it's just really, it's just an important thing to to understand that aligning with who you are at your core, whether you're a human being and pursuing a sport or a career, or you're a company trying to pursue success in the market, align that behavior with who you are, because it's going to be easier. <laughs> it's going to be a lot easier. Right, right. And I, I gather from that chapter that it's 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 rare for companies to change their, their DNA. You, you write at the end of the chapter, corporate DNA can be changed but it isn't easy, nor in general is it a good idea, unless you have both unwavering vision and the capital <laughs> to succeed. It's costly. <laughs> it's very costly, extremely costly. I think I, I think I give these examples in the book, but it's worth just bringing them up. Two, two very famous companies that everybody knows. Everybody knows Amazon. Everybody knows Apple, right? So Amazon is a company that, I don't know, I'm going to say 15, 17 years ago, made a, Jeff Bezos made a very purposeful strategic decision to change his company from mechanic DNA to mother DNA. And he started by buying a company called Zappos. And I think if, mm-hmm. if all your listeners remember Zappos, you know, they were, they were known for their incredible customer service. And Tony Shea wrote a book about uh, delighting the customer and all of this. So Jeff Bezos didn't buy Zappos because Jeff Bezos couldn't figure out how to sell shoes online, right? Of course he could. He was selling everything else online. He bought Zappos because for the customer centricity because he was that was the first DNA shift he made in order to change the company from being very mechanic oriented to being very mother oriented and that's also around the same time that he came out with his new mission statement for the company which was and he published this wild wild widely uh, to be earth's most customer centric company okay so then the next thing he did is he told everybody in every meeting I want an empty chair in every meeting to represent the customer yes Right. I mean, he just did thing after thing after thing to purposefully change the way the company thought about customers. And now that's what they do. Now, they don't do it with warm and fuzziness. It's all around technology, right? Their, their whole thing is to give the customer the best possible experience. That's what Prime was all mm-hmm. about, by the way. It was about giving people a much better experience. And they do it primarily through technology. So Amazon is a company that purposefully, over the course of 15 years, so it took time and a lot of money, <laughs> changed changed their their course and became a mother. Apple on the other hand, under the leadership of Steve Jobs was clearly a missionary, right? He was a person who who the next big thing just kept happening over and over and over again under his leadership. When Steve passed away, uh they Tim Cook tried on several occasions with several people to replace that missionary visionary person who could see what the next big thing is and make it come to life. He tried with lots of people. And over the course of, I don't know, 10 years or whatever it's been, um, he was not able to, to do that. And so what ha- so it happened to him, the shift from missionary to 
mechanic happened to Apple. And now Tim's embracing it, and now they just want to build the best products on earth, and it's all about product, 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 product. So it's a very different company, but that happened to Tim Cook and Apple. He didn't make that decision to shift that way. So he could have probably done it a little bit faster if he had purposefully done it, but he was still trying to be the missionary that Apple always had been. Sure, sure. (laughs) Quite a load on him. Yeah, quite a load. But here's what I did want to make one great comment about Tim Cook. There isn't a human being out there who is a better steward of the assets they were left than Tim Cook. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He took a company that was already successful and valuable and made it way more successful and way more valuable. So, so that's when people say to me, is it, is it bad to be a mechanic? No, (laughs) you could be super successful as a mechanic. Think Microsoft, Apple, you know, Oracle. These are companies that are super successful as mechanics. So it doesn't mean none of these are good or bad. There, you can be successful in any one of these. Just be who you are. Is my my mission? Yeah, or as I I've heard throughout my life, just be yourself. Just be yourself. Exactly. Just be yourself. (laughs) My kids are going for job interviews. I say, just be yourself. And I probably heard my mom say that to me. So uh, anyway. That's true. But but what I say to my kids before they go out and do something is I say, you know, make sure you can answer the question, who are you and why do you matter? There you go. I love it. I love it. Yes. Oh. Well, uh, before we wrap up, let's talk let's, let's walk briefly through these six C's of positioning because I think they would be really helpful for for the listeners and uh, when you work with clients to develop a positioning, you take a a close look at them obviously as we've discussed and and the the ecosystem around them through six distinct lenses, all of which yep. start with the letter C. Huh? Yeah, so, I love that letter. My last name starts with a C as well. There we go. So let's walk through those just to give folks a you know a sense of what's important or, or remind them. And we've already talked about one. So core. The first one. The first one is core, which is the the three DNA types, right? Yep, we call that. We call that core. Okay. So that's your, your core DNA, essentially. Right. And that's one lens. And I just before I, I just explain quickly what each of those are, I, I do want to say that this is part of the research that we do before we actually get into are you a mother mechanic or a missionary, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's what's one of these six Cs. But there's five others of these that we do before we actually begin the work of of positioning. Right. And that is to to understand the market from many different angles. Yes. Okay. So what are those angles? One angle is who you are, that's your core. One angle is what category are you mm-hmm. in? Right? Now this is something that can be an extremely strategic question because category there are options with category. You don't have to be in the category uh, that that seems natural for you to be in. You can you can Sometimes people like to create new categories. I'm not in favor of that because it's very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. But you can create new subcategories inside of an existing category. And you can also – you can decide to be a leader in a really big category that already exists or you can be – or sorry, you can be a player in a big category that already exists or a leader in a much smaller category. So category is a decision that you can make. That's my point behind category. It's not a decision that the analyst community or other people can make for you. You can decide what category you're in. In other words, who are the What's the peer group that you want to be seen with? Mm-hmm. And it's not always as obvious as it seems. So that becomes a very strategic yes. discussion. And you're right. It's a lot easier to get consumer mindshare when you were redefining something everyone already understands than it is to open up white space for a product no one can yet fathom. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So just to give you a very quick example on category, we did a lot of work with Cisco um, back in the days when John Chambers first became CEO. This was many, many, many years ago. But John came to us and he said, 
we're a hub and router company over here at Cisco. I've just become CEO. I know that we can be much more valuable than a hub and router company because that's a very low value commodity type market. Um, but I don't know what that is. So I'd like to hire you to help us figure out what that is. And a fellow named Ron Ritchie, who worked for me at the time, who then went on to work for Cisco later, uh, and I developed this strategy for for Cisco to take them out of the hub and router category, right? Remove them from that category and put them in a brand new place that was that we labeled the internet economy. And the reason we were able to do this is the internet was just starting to appear back in those days, just starting to emerge as an important thing. We noticed contextually, and that's another lens that you need to look at when you're doing positioning in one of the six C's, Mm -hmm. we call it context. Um, What we noticed is that the hardware industry was represented by Andy Grove and Intel at that time. Semiconductors was representative of the hardware industry. The software industry was represented in large part by Microsoft and Bill Gates. And we noticed that the internet industry, which had not yet really emerged, had nobody to represent it. So we said, hmm, why doesn't Cisco represent the internet part of the industry? Because guess what you need in order to have an internet? Hubs and routers. <laughs> so we we positioned Cisco as the third leg of the stool that was holding up the entire technology industry. Hardware was represented by Intel, software represented by Microsoft, and then there was this new company, Cisco, representing this new leg of the stool called the internet. And what we did is a lot of tactics associated with this, like hundreds of tactics to make this happen. But one of the biggest things we did is we told John Chambers, who was a, who was a great speaker and spoke, he probably had a different speaking engagement every week. He probably did 50 of them a year. And we said to him, let's look at your speaking calendar and we're going to change things. So instead of speaking somewhere every week, you're only going to speak, even if it's only three times a year, but you're only going to speak on stage with Bill Gates and Andy Grove. (laughs) And if those two guys, if those two guys aren't on the stage, you're not either, right? So I want you to be clustered with those two companies, Intel and Microsoft. And so what we ultimately did was create this notion of a new space called the internet economy and we create we put them in a whole different category and the category was in i would call it industry defining companies microsoft intel and cisco and the press picked up on this and they created a phrase they called it wintelco for windows mm-hmm. intel and cisco and they started saying wintelco is the is the conglomerate that runs this industry. So in in a very short amount of time we took Cisco's valuation and the story is in the book from you know much much smaller to 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 billions of dollars because of this positioning. So the the message I want to give your listeners are if you do positioning well and you do it right, you can increase the value of your company by in many cases billions of dollars. So it's an, really an important thing to do. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Great story. Okay. So that's my, that's my context story. The other three Cs, just I know because we're about ready to wrap up, the other lenses that you want to look at the market through that you can understand so you can do a better job positioning is the community you serve, which you must understand is not only your customers. Right. They're, of course, critical, but it's also the people who influence your customers mm-hmm. to make decisions. It's the competition, of course. Everybody knows you have to understand your competition. And then the final C is something we call criteria, which is a little bit different from the other C's, but it's what does what would a successful position look like to you? So we make people write this down ahead of time. What does a successful position look like? And an example of that is um, if you're building a product that is particularly targeted towards, say, Gen Zers, then attractive to Gen Zers is a criteria, right? That would be a criteria for a perfect positioning statement for that company. So 
that's that's what you need to look at. If you look at the market thoroughly through those six different lenses and you write a list of criteria for what would be a perfect positioning statement, you are high, much more likely to get there after all of this work than you would have if you just sort of locked yourself in a room and lit some incense and a candle and said, ah, what's a great idea for this company? Because <laughs> it's not about creativity. It's about rigor. Yes. And uh, Andy, I just got to say, there are... A couple of sections in your book that you know really irritated me. Uh, if we can, <laughs> okay, sure. Now, as a former uh, New York City Madison Avenue ad guy who you know dressed like Don Draper back in the day, <laughs> great. There are a couple of uh, what I call, and I see this in a lot of marketing books, what I call Don Draper slurs. Okay, ah, so and and I don't like you, you know, beating up on my people. And so, but this this harkens back to something we mentioned earlier, and I just had to laugh because you write page eighteen. The important thing to remember: discovering a company's competitive advantage and articulating it simply and elegantly doesn't come from a Don Draper style magic man <laughs> going off to a closed room and emerging two weeks later with the perfect tagline. And another thing about that that you don't include is, I think you kind of skimmed over what happens in those two weeks. You didn't include that there is quite a bit of drinking that goes on. <laughs> And then on page yes. on page fifty, once again, you know, you're beating up on my people here. You say uh, this harkens back to the CEO you were talking about, the finance guy. Most people like a framework. In fact, many need a framework. Despite a cultural love affair with Mad Men that lasted eight years, I've found that more often than not, people are suspicious of the notion of a bunch of creative types disappearing into their coffee fueled lair only to emerge <laughs> triumphantly after a week or two and announce, ta-da, here's your from-the-mouth-of-God marketing plan. <laughs> I'm kidding. I, I just found that. Uh, no, it, 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 is, it is funny. I mean, I, 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 here's a compliment for those ad guys. There, there is nothing better than a delicious frosting on top of a cake, right? Nothing better. That's what makes the cake the beautiful thing. Like, you go to a wedding, and typically the frosting looks great, but the cake, doesn't taste so good, right? So that's what that's what branding does when you don't have positioning. Yes. When you have great positioning and great branding, you get beautiful frosting that makes the cake beautiful, but underneath it, you've got a great tasting cake that people want to eat. There you go. <laughs> no, it's all true. It's all true, folks. I'm, and I'm just, I'm just kidding. Let me just ask one other question uh, from the book. Uh, it's towards the end. You, uh, you write that as far as category creation or becoming the next big thing goes... Here's the funny thing. It isn't usually a good idea to be first out of the gate. So is is the first mover advantage not all it's cracked up to be? It is not. It is absolutely not. And that is because those are the pioneers who get shot in the back with arrows because they, they're making mistakes because it's the first time anything has ever been done. And they're typically roadkill on the side of the road while the, while the winner is look, standing back and watching what those pioneers are doing and learning how to do it better. It's, so it's typically the third or fourth or fifth company into a market that actually figures out how to turn it into a category. So when people say category creation, I would prefer the phrase category building <laughs> because they're not creating the category. In fact, I do not know of a single first mover that actually created a category. Mm -hmm. I don't know of a single one. Um, so, But building a category, once you recognize that something is bubbling and you've watched what the pioneers have done and you've learned from it and you do it better, 
that's when you can really, really reap the reward. So it's really not first mover advantage. It's more like third mover advantage. <laughs> yes. Uh, startups whose mantra is we have to be first to market usually lose. That was from uh, Steve Blank yes. who quoted in the book. Yes, yes. And Steve's great. He, he's, he's a m- mentor of mine, a former client of mine, and just a great, great marketer. Mm. Mm. So, Andy, if readers took only one thing away from the book – what would you hope it would be? That positioning is critical to great marketing. You must do positioning. I'd love it if you did it with my firm. That would be fabulous. Mm-hmm. But you can do it any way you want to do it. Do it Do it on your own. Do it from reading my book. Get a lot from the Jack Trout and Al Reese book and do it that way. But just do it. <laughs> yes. Amen. Amen. So what's one thing a listener could do today when they finish listening to this? Just to put in action one of the ideas from your book to get them – engaged and, and, and thinking about heading in the right direction? I think the most important thing someone can do is go to the pages, and I don't have it right in front of me, that talk about a message architecture. Oh, chapter five. And, okay, and build your own. Yes. And even if you haven't given a lot of rigor into the process of doing this work, go through that exercise and write down the answers to each of those things in the message architecture. Like your students And you'll do. find out, like the students mm-hmm. do, and you'll find out what you, need, what you need to do more work on. Because to do great marketing, to sell anything to anyone, there there has to be a, a message architecture. And it's, again, it's much better to control it than it is to let the customer control it for you, <laughs> right? I mean, this is all about control. <laughs> all of this work is about control, controlling your own brand. Yeah, and your destiny. And you even have, this is what appealed to me, on page 103 in that chapter, you write, look, if you get stuck, use the following Mad Lib as a tool. Yes, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> to help you write your elevator story, but don't rely on it entirely. But it's it's very detailed. It's probably the longest chapter in the book and very, very detailed. So absolutely. Get hold of chapter five and just start working through that. That's, that's Yes, great. exactly. Just build a message architecture. Oh. <laughs> well, Andy, looking back, aside from positioning, <laughs> what books have most inspired your work and career? Oh, I knew you were going to ask this question. So I do. I definitely want to give you uh, six Five books oh, great. That, that meant a lot to me. Okay, the first one was was the positioning book that we talked about by Jack Trout and Al Reese. That was sort of the beginning of my infatuation with this whole thing. Second book, Crossing the Chasm by my friend Jeffrey yes. Moore. Um, the third book, which is really more about strategy, but really great, Blue Ocean Strategy. Mm-hmm. The fourth book uh, is called Made to Stick, written by a Stanford professor. I forget his last name. It's, but Chris, it's the I think Heath. His first Heath. name. Uh, Heath, Heath, right. right Heath's. Yes, exactly. And then, exactly. And then another old book, I'll bookend this with an old, two old books. One is Positioning and the other one is called The Regis Touch by my old boss, Regis McKenna, who I, I helped him market that book. But The Regis Touch was all about the first, um, he discovered how to use influencers to market things. We all know what influencers are today on the internet, but he discovered how to do it before there was an internet. So. Wow, <laughs> I did not know that. So that's from 1986. Yes. The Regis Touch, New yeah. Marketing Strategies for Uncertain Times, million-dollar advice from America's top marketing consultant. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's that, that would make a lot of sense that you would uh, mention that book. So, well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Yeah, and you interviewed Mark Schaefer, his new book, Belonging to the oh, Brand. Um, yes. It is the new. It is the new marketing. You do have to have a community mm-hmm. around your brand, and he's done a great job of telling that. So I love that book, and I know that you didn't ask for non-marketing books, but I have to. Bring I up said the any one. books. 
Many book. Yes. Okay. So I just finished reading a really great book about an Antarctic expedition called Madness at the End of the Earth by a guy named Julian Sancto. And it is just a wonderful story of, a, of a, an expedition to Antarctica where the boat got stuck in the ice for well over a year and the perseverance of the of the crew and how they got through and how they survived is just, I think, very inspiring. Oh, wow. <laughs> Madness at the End of the Earth. Belchica's yes. Journey yes, into the exactly. Dark Antarctic Night yep, by Julian exactly. <laughs> Sancton. Oh, man. Oh, Sancton. Sorry, I, I said Sancto, but it's Sancton, yeah. yes. Oh, boy, that looks yes. really interesting. I appreciate you telling it's me. It's very good. <laughs> now, what time, what era was that? Is that a long time ago? It's late, late 1800s. Oh, late 1897. 1800s. I see it here, yeah. Yeah. The young Belgian yep. command, commandant. Okay, well, anyway, <laughs> folks can read. Yes. Now you got me going. It's really yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> super. Well, terrific. At marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that you've mentioned, your website, uh, your, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And now where do you – Awesome. D- dear listener, please reach out to Andy. Come on. She seems really, please. really friendly. <laughs> reach out to her and, and congratulate her on this book and thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and putting up with these really stupid jokes. Send her a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or tag her on one of those. Guests on the show have told me how much they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Absolutely. And Andy, yes. not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking, as we discussed. <laughs> And if you're listening, I, uh, yes. yeah, I have to see them. I have to see you guys. Give me, you know, give me. Let's do a Zoom They are call. very good looking people. <laughs> I've met many of them in my travels, but then I, I get connected to a lot of them on LinkedIn, and I they're either very good looking or they're using stock photos of models uh, on their LinkedIn. <laughs> or they're not who they are. Okay, yes, good. But I think they are. They're not. I think they're okay. Good. That's just, great. So they have good DNA. What you're saying. They have thank good you, DNA. Andy Cunningham. That is exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the marketing book podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, page 233. Defining your company clearly and succinctly and understanding why it matters in the market is no longer a mystery. Now you know that you can discover your positioning DNA and use it to answer the toughest question in business. Who are you and why do you matter? Once you know at your core, if your company is a mother, a mechanic, or a missionary, you'll have the power to get to AHA and develop a perfect positioning statement that differentiates you from the competition and compels customers to come calling. The book is Get to AHA, Discover Your Positioning DNA and Dominate Your Competition. The author is Andy Cunningham. Andy, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, Doug, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. I love your sound effects. Uh. Can you dig it? And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you are one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. 
Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.